We're talking about discipleship still. Discipleship. And what does that mean? Uh, man, Ryan was all over my sermon today. I was sitting back there just going nuts, man. I was wanting to like get happy and just, just man, I was, I was like, man, thank you, Lord. It was confirmation that, that, yeah, we're on the right direction. We're doing with the Lord. All the songs, everything we sing about today is about what we're going to be talking about today. The deliverance and, the, and the, the wonderful authority and deliverance we get to walk in as disciples, but also the deliverance and authority we get to share and impart as disciples, okay? So we've been, we've been talking about discipleship the last few weeks. And just as a quick recap, disciple, the Greek word would be methetus. Uh, Hebrew is Talmudim. You would be all, all of you would be Talmudim if you consider yourself to be a disciple. And it means far more than just being a student or a pupil. It means being a, a follower and an imitator. So uh, a, if you were part of a Talmudim of a particular teacher or rabbi, or for the Greeks, if you were part of a Methodist for a particular philosopher, you would, you would almost abandon everything and almost abandon your own identity to start taking on the habits, the identity, the mannerisms of that particular rabbi or philosopher or teacher. So it, it goes far beyond just um, sitting in a classroom taking notes and then trying to figure out how to apply it and become. So that's what the Lord is leading us as a congregation to try to do is to become imitators and followers of him. Now we have a very unique congregation. We come from a lot of different spiritual backgrounds. We a lot of different uh, denominations. We got Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, Pentecostal, Lutheran, Presbyterian, folks coming from all kind of angles and flavors of Christianity. And we're really good the, the American church has become really good over the decades at creating disciples of our culture, of our spiritual culture. You know, what, whatever type of church you grew up in or you attended for a while, well, you knew how to do church really well within that background, right? And then you get together with other folks, and you're like, oh, this is a bit different, huh? I feel out of place, or I feel awkward, or I feel intrigued, or interested, or, or whatnot. Well, the, 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 the problem is, is we've become disciples of a particular mindset or a particular way of doing things, and not so much really disciples of Christ, disciples of Jesus. You know, uh, uh, some folks become a, a, a much more of a disciple of Paul or Peter or James, whoever wrote a particular epistle, and they'll camp out there, uh, and they'll forget about some of the simplicity of what Christ had to say. And so what, what the Lord has been directing us to do is to get back to becoming disciples or followers of Jesus. Well, in order to do that, it starts with uh, this mindset. John chapter 8, verse 31, just a quick review. So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed, so there were some Jews who had believed in him. Now he's calling them to be disciples. So just believing in Christ, believing in his saving, redemptive work, isn't necessarily enough to become a disciple. There's a lot of people that are going to heaven that aren't really truly disciples of, of, of Jesus, who are not truly imitators, followers of Jesus. So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, which means to hold fast to my teachings and live in accordance with them, 
You are truly my imitators, my followers, my pupils, my disciples. Verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How many want to walk in true freedom in life? True freedom comes by knowing the truth. Well, in order to know the truth, you have to become a, an imitator of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. We have to become imitators of Christ, followers of Christ. How do we do that? Well, we got to dive into his word. It says you got to abide, dwell, live in the word, get it in you every day. Get it in you every day. There's one reason why we said, hey, Let's all hook up and, and, and uh, we, we challenged you at the top of the year to, to do a one-year Bible. If you say, oh man, yeah, I kind of slacked on that. Well, just pick back up where, where you left off, you know, especially if you're using an app, it'll, it'll update you. Uh, that's one, one reason. Uh, Isaac, how many folks do you have on your, Isaac started a group and every year he encourages people to, to hook up and join So somewhere between 60 and 80 folks hop online with, with uh, a group that Isaac has utilized with an app, and, and they, they, they read daily. They, they hop on their phones. They'll, they'll do their daily reading, and folks will post sometimes about, man, this is what I got out of it. Well, what are they doing? They're trying to abide or remain, stay in the Word. Why? Because they're trying to become more like Jesus. They're not trying to become better churchgoers, you know? They're not trying to become better whatever flavor you want to consider yourself, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, they're trying to become better Christs, Amen. Christians, right? And, and it takes abiding in the word. Uh, so that's one reason why we, we, we've been very adamant of this year. Get into the word, get into the word. Hook up with a Bible study. We, we offer four Bible studies during the week between our, our youth, men's, women's, and, and our general Bible study on Wednesdays over the Jackson for, for whosoever wants to come, right? Four, four different Bible studies. If none of those times or groups work for you, there's a ton of online Bible studies. Find one, join them, right? Get into the word. Uh, so a disciple, in, in other words, our interpretation of disciple would be something like this, a follower imitator of Christ who is actively engaged in developing Full life submission to the authority or lordship of Jesus Christ. That word authority in the Greek is exousia, which means power placed in proper hands. Just, just like, you know, we can have criminals running around with guns. Well, they got power. That's not the proper hands for it, though. Or you have the authority or the police department who should be the proper hands. Who are, back, who, are, who are backed up by the municipality in which they serve, right? Well, that same thing with Christ. Christ in Matthew chapter 28 said, all authority has been given to me. Matthew chapter 28 is the great commission. We call it the great commission because it's the one commission out of the five commissions listed in the Bible, which Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts is the one commission that commands us to go make other Talmudim, other disciples, other imitators, right? And he gives us the authority. He said, all authority has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples. Well, how do we do that? Again, this is review over the last few weeks. Paul gives us the perfect pattern. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1. Pattern yourselves after me. Follow my example as I imitate and follow 
Christ, the Messiah. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, and so we pose the question, are you living a life that's worth imitating? If someone started living like you, behaving like you, talking like you, doing life like you, are they going to be imitating Christ? Are you reflecting enough Christ for folks to imitate? Okay, that's how we make disciples. Last week we talked about we don't have to do it alone because Jesus, the first four disciples he called, you remember, were two sets of brothers that hung out together. They were partners. So the first four official disciples that he called or followers or imitators were people that were already in relationship together. And that's what he wants from us. He wants us to be in relationship and to do life together and to learn to imitate each other as we try to imitate Christ. So that's the question. How do we start imitating Christ? Where do we even begin? Where do we start? Do we walk around like the Jesus in the movies or the TV shows? How do we do, you know, it's not a matter of what would Jesus do. It's really learning about what did Jesus say? Because if I can learn what he said, then I can know what to do, right? So we're going to start with this. Everyone want to learn how to start being like Jesus? Anyone? I do. And I admit it last week. I've, I've, I gave my heart to the Lord as a child, but many, many years of my life, I really wasn't per the real definition of disciple. I really wasn't a disciple. I was a good churchgoer. Man, I barely missed church. I was super involved in church. Grew up playing music in church. Grew up preaching in church. I knew how to do church. I just didn't do Jesus very well. And, and so my life is becoming ongoing. And some days I feel like I get it halfway decent. Other days, you know, I'm like, Lord, I didn't really do a good job of being you today, did I? And, and so we learn to daily wake up and make a choice to imitate them. So today we're going to talk about the five-fold ministry of Jesus. That's a nice kind of old English way of saying it, right? Five-fold, it means just five-part. The five parts of Jesus's ministry, okay? He, if, you, if you're saying, what was Jesus all about? He summed it up really kind of at the head of his ministry. He said, look, this is what I'm here to do. And if you can, if you can concentrate on these five things, then you're going to be doing a good job of being a whole lot more like Jesus, right? And what's great is being like Jesus starts with me. So that means I get to encounter the benefits of being like Jesus. And as I pattern it for others, they can start encountering the benefits, right? So let's, let's read up on what's going on here. So let's start being like Jesus. Here we go. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 16. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood town. So he goes back to his hometown where he grew up, right? When he came to the village of Nazareth, he went as usual. Everyone say as usual. He went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Well, right there, hey, let's. It was a usual thing for him to do on his Sabbath was to go to the synagogue. Now I understand for the Jews the Sabbath was on Saturday. You know, we kind of within our Western Christian concept we do Sundays as church. But how about that? As usual, he was in church on the Sabbath, right? So I encourage everyone, and if you're watching, make it a 
habit, as usual, on your Sabbath to be in church. Let's just start there. I'm going to throw that out. Let that stew a little bit. Uh, in other words, if he, if he wasn't in the synagogue on the Sabbath, that would have been unusual, right? Are we living our life where it's like, man, so-and-so wasn't here today. That's not usual. <laughs> so, just going to throw that out there. That's really not the main point of my sermon today, but just going to throw that out there. Y'all ain't happy about that, are you? <laughs> so as usual, <laughs> he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures, right? Now understand something about the scrolls of the Torah. After the exile and the Jews coming back to exile, a lot of the written Torah, for the longest, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible were actually verbal history. They, they, they hadn't written it down. There wasn't a lot of multiple copies of it for, for eons and eons, for many, many years. So, so the Jews, and, and also there was a lot of Jews that didn't know how to read at the time. So you know, the, the, you know, the fact that we have a room full of people that read would be absolutely genius and remarkable to a lot of folks throughout history, right? So just the blessing of us being able to read, you don't realize how huge of a blessing that is, right? And so, so there were lot of, lots of common folk that didn't know how to read. And yet they would memorize scripture. They would repeat and say scripture over and over and over. And they had so much of the prophets and so much of the, uh, the, the writings of Moses memorized just verbally. And so what they would do uh, uh, for many years, they would have different parts of the Torah divided up, you know, prophets, poetry, uh, the Pentateuch, and, and these Torahs would travel and would remain in a region for a certain time. And that's that region and the synagogues, they would read. And each family, if there was someone who could read in that family, would be assigned, hey, on this week, you get to do the reading of the Torah. And on this week, you guys are going to do the reading of the Torah, right? And, and so for the region of Nazareth, they actually got to hang on to the, the book of the prophets, apparently. And apparently it was Jesus back in his hometown. He was someone amongst his family that could read. So who knows? Perhaps they said, well, gee, look at that. Jesus is back in town. Jesus, why don't you, it's your family's turn anyway to read. Why don't you read, do our daily sabbatical reading today, right? So says verse 17, the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet was handed to him. Notice he didn't go pick it out. It's ironically, they handed him the scroll, right? He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. So he was handed Isaiah. He undoes, he undoes the scroll and he finds, here it is right here, Isaiah 61, which Ryan already read to us today. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Now let's stop there. Why would everyone be stared, you know, 
Why? There's a reason why they're staring at him intently. It's because of where he would have sat. Uh, now, in Matthew, Jesus makes a comment to his disciples about the Pharisees, which were, were uh, one of the prominent uh, teaching sects of Judaism, right? Uh, he, tells, he tells his disciples, he said, uh, if, if I remember the King James, I believe it said, uh, they speak from the seed of Moses, so listen to what they say, but don't do as they do in the marketplace. In other words, he, he, he's showing the hypocrisy that was running throughout some of the religious leaders that, man, they'll preach, they preach good word, but then if you look at their lifestyle, man, they're cheating people in the marketplace, and they're looking, they're looking to gain a lot of attention, and they... You know, they want special treatment in the marketplace and stuff. So, so they're not necessarily practicing what they preach. Now, other translations in Matthew will say they speak from the authority of Moses. So listen to them, but don't do it as they do in the marketplace. And so for many years, folks thought Jesus' comment about they speak from the seat of Moses was a figurative thing. In other words, kind of like... You, you ever seen uh, movies like where, where, where they have a court scene and then the judge says, please, uh, please approach the seat. Well, the judge isn't talking about the, the desk chair that he or she's sitting in. He's talking about the position of authority. They're sitting in a seat of authority or a seat of judgment, a seat of law. Well, so that's, that's kind of what a lot of theologians just assume that Jesus was talking about a figurative seat and then archaeologists started finding a lot of um, uh, remnants of synagogues from that time that were still intact. And sure enough, they kept finding right beside the, the, the cabinet that would hold the scrolls, there was a seat, and on the seat it would be inscribed, the seat of Moses. So they said, oh, it is, it's a real seat. <laughs> they named this seat the seat of Moses. So what would happen is usually if a family member that attended synagogue would read, they would read, but then you would have one of the rabbis or the teachers listen, hear what was read, and sit down on the seat of Moses, which was right beside this cabinet full of scrolls, and would expound upon and teach the lesson from that scripture. So basically, he'd bring the sermon. Now, the reason why they looked intently at Jesus is not only did he read this scripture, but he rolls it up, but now he goes and sits at the seat of Moses. And whoever spoke from the seat of Moses, the reason why is because Moses brought the law. So if you are sitting representing Moses, that means whatever you have to say needs to be law needs to be pure, needs to be God's word, which is why that was always reserved for the Pharisees, those who had been schooled in the law of Moses. They were the ones qualified to speak truth because if they're speaking it, that's why Jesus said, they speak from the seed of Moses, so listen to what they have to say, just don't do what they're doing. Because what they're saying is pure word. So here's Jesus who is not the trained, schooled rabbi reading, but then he goes and he sits down on the seat. 
So everybody's looking at them intently. Oh, well, look at that. I guess he's going to be preaching today. What does he have to say? This is interesting. So as they're listening intently or looking intently, this is what he says. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. This is huge. Because per their culture and per their law and the way that they did church, this is him sitting down with authority, with the authority of Moses per se, saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I just read a text that was penned 700 years before I was born. And that text was about me. And you're witnessing it being fulfilled right now. Of course, everyone's in shock. You know, they went from hearing, thinking, oh, he speaks so eloquently to, wait a minute, isn't this Jesus that we, we watched him? You know, my boy played basketball at the YMCA with him. You know? He spent the night with my kid when they were like, you know, Mary and Joseph went on vacation. We had to watch them. Then we see him grow and he even told him, he said, now, the first thing you're going to say is, physician, heal thyself. In other words, you say you're who you are, show us some proof. And he said, I'm not going to work a miracle because even if I did, you still wouldn't believe because a prophet is never honored in his own, in his own hometown. So it's interesting that he picked a place that he knew there wasn't going to be a lot of believers to boldly sit on a chair of authority and say, this is who I am. Whether you want to believe it or not, I'm willing to sit down on this chair and tell you. That's a pretty powerful statement, right? Now, what did he say that he was going to do? Well, we're about to take a look. He said he was here for five reasons. And he quoted from Isaiah, which was huge for them. Everybody, whether they could read or not, they could quote Isaiah 61. They had heard it since they were a child. They would say it at dinner time. They'd say it all throughout the day. They would say it to encourage each other about the Messiah. He said, I'm here for five reasons. And what's exciting about it is not only did Jesus come for those five reasons, but if we're going to start imitating him, that means that we get to not only walk in these five reasons, but we actually get to also initiate these five reasons as a lot of fun things that we get to do and some life-changing things. Matter of fact, John chapter 14, 12 says this. He says, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus talking. Anyone who believes in me, does anyone in this room believe in Christ? The death, burial, resurrection of Christ, that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all your sins, that his redemptive work allows you to become, faith through Christ allows you to become a new creature. Anyone in here believe that? Right. Well, then if you believe it, guess what? It says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works. Because I am going to be with the Father. He said, look, I'm going to be with the Father, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit down to empower you. And you get to do the same things that I've done. The same mission that I'm on, you get to be on. And you're going to do it even bigger and better. Because there's going to be a whole lot more of you than there is me. That's exciting. What is this mission? So let's look at the five-fold, five-part ministry of Jesus. 
According to Isaiah 61, this is what he said. He said, I'm here to bring good news to the poor. Now I want to stop for just one second. If you have a King James version, you're going to, you're going to notice that there's something missing from all the other versions that are actually in the King James. King James actually adds a sixth one. It says, to bind the brokenhearted. Well, the earth, and, and just for the sake of if anyone wants to get into theological debate and all that stuff and blah, 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 which I'm not here to debate anything. From, from everything I've been able to re read, the earliest manuscripts didn't have Jesus saying, bind the brokenhearted. Whatever they translated the King James to try to make it match Isaiah 61 a little bit. Because if you go back and read Isaiah 61, he does say to bind the brokenhearted. So they, oh, well, hey, let's make this match a little bit better. And so they added it to it, right? Uh, which I believe that Jesus came to bind the brokenhearted. So whether you want to have it in there or not, I guarantee you if all these things are taking place in your, your life, your broken heart is going to be bound up and knit up and all that stuff. I, I promise you that. So whether you want to have it in there or not, it's going to happen. I promise you. There you go. That's my debate point. So bring good news to the poor. Isn't that awesome? We get to bring good news to the poor. Say, that's right. All them people out there without money, we get to bring good news. No, it has nothing to do with money. Some of the richest people I've ever met didn't have hardly any money. I've had the honor of preaching down in Devil's Canyon, Mexico, and the region all around that, that area years ago. And we used to take uh, food supplies and toys and clothing to villages all throughout that region, just uh, south of Sota La Marina and Tampico, and that area, some of, the, some of the rural areas. And some of these people lived in cardboard huts. And they were so full of the love of God, and they had the biggest smiles on their face, and they were some of the happiest people I've ever met. And they only had a fraction of what I had, possession-wise. Some of the most miserable people, miserable, pe miserable people I have met have nice fat bank accounts. <laughs> so wealth, wealthiness, poorness has nothing to do with how much you have in the bank. If you're poor, it means that in your mind you have lack. There's some wealthy people in this, this world that, that are miserable because they feel like they're lacking something. There's some folks that are living below poverty level that are so full of joy because they realize they don't lack anything. They've got Christ. Now notice Jesus said in the Beatitude, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He didn't say blessed are the poor. Some folks will sit there and say, see, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, there's, you gotta, you know, you gotta, there's got to be poverty. No, he never said that. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, in your spirit, if you realize that you have nothing, that he's everything, you need him for everything spiritually, hey, you're blessed. You know, when you're poor, you're dependent. So if you're spiritually dependent on him, that you can't do it on your own, you're blessed. But he's saying, hey, we get to preach some good news to the poor, those who think there is lack because Christ Jesus has now reconciled us back to God. We get to be one with the Father. Is there any lack in the Father? No. Is there any limitation in the Father? No. Is there always enough in the Father? Yes. So no matter what your bank account situation is, it doesn't matter. All of that is irrelevant. What's relevant is if you have God, you've got everything. Because he said, I'll provide for your needs 
all your needs according to my riches and glory. That's one of his promises. No matter what need you have, I'll take care of it. I'll give you provision. Whether that means that you're living in a mansion or living in a hut, it doesn't matter. You will prosper in whatever he's called you to do. That's good news. Maybe not to y'all. It is to me. Because <laughs> I'm desperate for him. We get to proclaim freedom for captives. This is what he said. I, I, matter of fact, I love how he started this whole thing out before he started the list. He says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. What's that? That's the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that was on Christ gets to be in you, on you. And guess what happens when the Holy Spirit is on you, when it comes upon you? He says, because the Lord has anointed me. The word there in, in Greek was, it has to do with Christos or Christ in the Greek. You know, we act like Christ is just Jesus's last name. Hello, Mr. Christ. It's nice to meet you. No, no, it's a, it's a title. It means the anointed one. It's the same thing as Messiah, the, the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means the same thing. God has, the Holy Spirit is upon me because God has anointed me or he has christened or Christed me to do these five things. Well, this is what's exciting. Acts chapter 1 and 8 lets us know that you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, <laughs> me. 1 John chapter 2 verse 20 tells us that you have been anointed or Christed or christened from the Holy One. In other words, the Holy Spirit has come upon each and every one of you. If you truly are a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and now you get to be Christed, christened. That's why Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, but now I'm giving it to you to go. Make imitators of me. Do you realize how much authority you get to walk in? How much power you get to walk in? We shouldn't be a people full of anxiety. We shouldn't be a people full of worry. We shouldn't be a people full of defeat and despair. Why? Because we have been Christed. If you believe in him, you are crucified with Christ, yet you live. It's Christ that lives within you. That means that you get to be Christ. That's not blasphemy. It's biblical. That's some powerful authority. So you get, you get to bring good news to the poor. When you see someone who feels like they're in lack, you get to tell them, look, there is no lack in the world. That's a lie. Man, let me tell you what Christ did for me. It has nothing to do with how much is in my bank account, but I'm telling you, ever since I've been walking with Christ, every need I've ever had, he's provided for me. It may not be in the way I expect it, but I'm telling you, he's provided for me. Proclaim freedom for the captives. That means, what, what is it that has held you back? Let this freedom start right here in this house before it goes out to the rest of the neighborhood. What, is, what has held you captive? Is it fear? Is it addiction? Is it your past? Is it words that have been spoken over you that have kept you frozen from moving forward? Well, guess what? You have now been Christed. You are free from that. 
the anointing, the, the Old Testament tells us that the anointing breaks the yoke and lifts the burdens. What burden are you still carrying? Because you got anointing on you. It should be, you're carrying a broken yoke. Put it down. Then he says, you get to proclaim sight to the blind. I believe that is physical. And I believe it's also spiritual. I've, I've been blessed. I got to be the, the part of, you know, in witness to a miracle in my life. Of, of there, there was a woman. I hadn't seen her in nine or ten months. She showed back up to church. She was blind. Turns out she, had struggled, she, she was dealing with Lyme's disease. It took her sight. She hadn't seen in over 10 months. And, and she was a, a Hispanic lady. Usually had big brown eyes. She, they were grayed out. Her family brought her to church. We were having this incredible altar service. People getting prayed for. She walked down and the Lord told me, he said, I want you to go over and ask her if she believes that I can heal her. And I said, oh, no. I don't want to do that. That's stuff that you did in the Bible, man. That's what, what, what if you choose not to do it? And he said, why would I tell you to do it if I'm not going to do it? So I went over. I said, do you believe that Jesus can heal you? You can bring sight back to your eyes. And she began to weep. She said, yeah. So I started praying with her, right? And y'all know how they do in these charismatic churches, right? Where I come from, right? She fell out. Like she fell out. I wasn't done praying for her, right? Like I'm not putting people down. People want to pray. Like if I ever pray for you and you fall out, that's fine. But if I'm not done praying for you, I'm getting you back up. I'm just letting you know, right? Or I'm going to get down there with you. I, I was like, well, she's blind. I'm going to get down there with her. I don't want to embarrass her. So I just got down there with her and kept praying for her. And I finally asked her, I said, what do you see? Can you see anything? Because she kept blinking and her eyes were just kind of filling up with tears. Not like she's crying. It's just, you know, she was like, oh. I said, can you see, what, what can you see? And she, she was laying there and she was looking up on the stage at the praise team. They were like, they were rocking, you know, playing and praising God. She said, I, I see a bunch of trees waving. Oh, man, I knew we were on the right track because that's what Jesus, like Jesus prayed. You remember he prayed for the blind man. He said, I see people walking around looking like trees. I said, all right. I said, don't go anywhere. So I started praying for her again, right? And, and we, we prayed and prayed and prayed. It was nothing that I did, but it was Jesus operating in the fivefold ministry. And within about 45 seconds, she, she started rubbing her eyes and blinked in big old tears, almost like something was cleansing her eyes. And she opened it with my own eyes. I saw gray eyes turn beautiful brown again. And she looked up and she could see. And she looked at me and she said, Pastor Dave, and, and this is what she said. She hadn't seen me in almost a year at that time. So here I am witnessing a miracle of biblical proportion. You know what she said to me? She said, Pastor Dave, you've gone gray. I thought, really, God? Like one of the most pivotal moments of my faith walk. And she's going to comment about my hair. And I said, I have. <laughs> I said, but I wasn't before I started praying for you. But, and then her daughter, I motioned for her daughter to come over. And it was the first time she'd seen her daughter in 10 months her teenage daughter. And she said, Oh, you've grown so much. Look at you. And she, it was such a sweet thing. So I have seen blind eyes open. Yeah. God hasn't, I've seen blind people since then, but God hasn't instructed me. Go lay hands on that person. Pray for him. You know, I don't understand God's ways. I trust his ways. I don't understand it, but I will say this. There are people walking around without their physical eyesight and they see far better than some of us that do have our eyesight. I guarantee you that. There are folks that are living for God. We get so blinded. 
We let, we let television, radio, talk shows direct how we should feel, get us all riled up and upset. And at the same time, God's like, if you only knew what was going on behind the scenes, open your eyes. You know, politics is not the answer for this world. But we have the answer and us as Christ. Man, if we can open our eyes, Lord, I proclaim my blind eyes to see today. Let me see what the Spirit is trying to show us. Let us all walk out of here with open eyes at everything God's trying to do. Proclaim freedom for the oppressed. Anything ever just hindered you? Oppression, there's spiritual oppression. There's sometimes, sometimes there's situational oppression. Anything, look, we get to proclaim, folks, we got the answer to get them over the hump, to get them through whatever it is that's blocking them, right? And finally, to proclaim God's salvation and favor for us. The word salvation means sozo in the Greek. It doesn't mean punching your ticket to heaven, you know, that's how we always act in church. Woo, come on down and get saved. In other words, we're say, what, we, what we say, what we mean when we say it is, come on down, make sure you're going to heaven. Salvation means, it's sozo. It means wholeness, restoration, wellness of being. Yeah, there is spiritual implication of the sweet by and by, eternal, <laughs> eternal glory, but it also is implication for right now. I praise God for my eternal abode that one day we all get to go, you know, be a part of. But it ain't doing me a bit of good, you know. Someone said, well, you got a mansion waiting for you. Well, that mansion ain't doing nothing for me right now, <laughs> you know. I need heaven right now. That's what sozo salvation is about. That now is the time for you to experience heaven on earth. Now is the time for you to experience the glory of God right now. And not only that, the favor of God. I hate to break people's theological stance, man. I know this upsets a lot of people when you tell them, guess what? God is not mad at you. God isn't mad at you. Well, you don't understand what I did. It doesn't matter. He is not angry at you. The Bible says the fullness of the wrath of God was poured out on the cross. So when Jesus hung for my sins and for every one of my mistakes that I've ever made and never will make, the fullness of God's wrath, God came off the top turnbuckle with his elbow, right? And just right on the cross. So I, I know it upsets no don't, don't, don't take away God's anger from me. I need God to be mad at me. I don't know why people want to be that way. Does that mean that he's pleased with everything you do if you're acting like a knucklehead? No. But he's made a way for you to get out of it. He's got a five-fold ministry, a five-part ministry. If you want to start being like Christ this week, start walking in this kind of freedom. These five things. You need to preach some good news to yourself. You know what? Look up. You don't lack anything. You are perfect in him. You are made whole in him. You are powerful in him. You are strong. 
in him. You are loving in him. You are happy in him. You are harmonious in him. Give yourself some good news. Proclaim some freedom for yourself. In the name of Jesus, I don't need this mess anymore. I'm not addicted to this anymore. I'm not held back. I'm not chained anymore. In the name of Jesus, I don't care what anyone said over me and spoke over me in my past. All I'm concentrating on is what God's saying about me right now. For our staff, every, every Monday we do our staff devotional. I've been taking them through 40 things that God says about me. And every week we add another Another affirmation according to the Spirit. Why? Because I, I, don't want, I don't want our staff bogged down with criticism, complaints, any of that stuff. No, no, you focus on what God's saying about you. Proclaim some sight. Lord, help me to see. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what political parties are saying. I don't even know what my, want to know what my neighbor's mouthing off about. I don't want to know about what my family's mouthing All I want to know, I want to see things according to your word. Proclaim some freedom from oppression. Nothing's going to hold me back and oppress me this week. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the, the day of God's favor in my life. And start imitating this and let it be contagious so that other folks want to follow after this. That's how you make disciples. So I'll stand. Look at that big sigh of relief. Whew. He told us to stand. As the musicians come back up, we're, we're about to sing about the victory of Calvary. But I want to say this. I'm praying so much that this freedom starts right here in this group and anyone who's watching. But I pray that it, it, it pours into the street and on everyone else. If you're here and you are struggling in any of these areas, I want to encourage you to call. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and they're saved. Say the name of the Lord. I, I, I left a video online this week and, and I mentioned many of you have been calling on the name of the Lord for years and you didn't even realize it. I was sharing this with my wife this week and it was a wonderful reminder there's, there's a, there were, you remember the, at the burning bush, Moses had the audacity to ask God what his name was. And I want to share this with you because I don't know who I'm talking to, who needs to hear this, who needs to feel this deliverance, or who needs to take this truth into this week. There was a name that God gave. In, in modern Hebrew, it would be I am that I am, or it's literally translated, I am the state of being that is the state of being. In other words, he was like, look around, Moses. You want to know my name? Look around. You're in me right now. You exist in me. But he gave the name that we learn within our English as Yahweh, or it would be translated Y-H-W-H. Now we add it vowel somewhere along the way because we need it to be able to pronounce something. <laughs> and so they, you know, they, they can translate it also as uh, Jehovah or Yehovah, right? And it's a common way for us to express the name of God. But that Y-H-W-H 
linguistics and those who study ancient languages and, and those who study ancient uh, 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 cultures and even those rabbis who have just steeped themselves in a lifetime of, of study with the Torah, they, they all agree that really that name, YHWH, sounded more, would be pronounced more as a breath, as an inhale and exhale. So something along the lines of Yahweh. So you can hear the Yahweh, Yahweh, a breath. So when God was asked, what's your name? It's almost as if he was saying, you've been saying it all along. It's been on your lips your entire life, Moses. You say it on autopilot. The mere fact that you are alive speaks my name. Because if you think about it, our breath, you know, if Ryan, God forbid, Ryan just to fall out right now, first thing we'd be is, man, is he breathing? Check to see if he's breathing, you know? Why? Because breath is one of the first telltale signs of life. When God formed Adam out of the, the dirt, but he didn't live until he breathed his name. Someone hear me. You need freedom today. Say his name. Say, I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know what to pray. Just breathe. Wow. Yahweh. Think about it. So a baby's first cry, when you had your baby, their first cry of life, they were saying his name. A deep sigh or groan or gasp is too heavy for mere words, calls his name. Even an atheist, you know, a lot of Christians want to get so angry at atheists. I gotta, I gotta defend the truth against us. How, how can you defend? Truth needs defense. Good luck with that. Truth doesn't need defending. Let God be God. He says he doesn't believe in God. Well, God still believes in him because he says his name with every breath he takes. Call his name. My parents, I had the honor of being by both of my parents' side when they left this earth. And with their last gasp of life, I heard them take that last breath and exhale. They were calling the name of their creator that they were returning back to. So when I can't utter anything else, is my cry calling out his name. Being alive means I speak his name constantly. So it's ironic that you can hear his name the most when you're the quietest. When you don't say a thing. And sadness, we breathe heavy sighs. 
In our joy, our lungs feel almost like they're about to burst. In fear, we hold our breath and we have to be told to breathe slowly to help us calm down. When we're about to do something hard, what do you do? You take a big old deep breath. So to think about it, breathing is giving him praise. The Bible says, let everything that has breath praise you the Lord, even in the hardest moments. Waking, sleeping, breathing with the name of God on our lips. Call his name today. He fought a powerful war and won a powerful victory for you. And embrace imitating the fivefold ministry of Christ. Lord, I love you. Father, I pray that your word doesn't return void. Let it plant in every one of our hearts. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to be incredible imitators of Jesus. For every time we come across somebody's path, they got to know what it is that we have. Why we're so joyous. Why we're so happy. Even when the world seems like it's falling apart around us. And let us just breathe your name over every situation of our life. We praise you. In Jesus' name. If you need prayer on this last song, come let me pray with you. I'd be honored to do so. I'll stand in faith with you. I'll be hanging out in the corner. Amen. Let's sing together one last time as a family.